Let's talk about Joseph's second dream. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If not, it will be on the screen. This is the second dream in and out of Egypt. Let's jump into it. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Again, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Um, it was, it's a fun study. I got derailed this week. How many angels are involved with escapes and jailbreaks? So when you end up in jail and an angel shows up, that means God's got your back. That's what you need to look forward to. Um, last Sunday, we, we noted that we don't have the name of this angel. The other birth narratives that Mary is visited by Gabriel. And Cindy pointed out to me uh, Tuesday this week, she, she was reading through all the narratives, and she said, do you realize that Gabriel also appeared to Zacharias? And I had forgotten that. So you have these birth announcements that are all tied into not only John the Baptist coming, but the, the Savior coming. So perhaps it's Gabriel, just FYI, we don't know for sure. The warning is very straightforward, it's very clear, it doesn't take a lot of exegesis to analyze, they're going to go to Egypt. But we do need to think about why in and out of Egypt. The phrase is going to, Herod is going to, is an urgent, this is like a fire drill, you know you're not supposed to yell fire in a building, I think it's a felony to yell fire. This is like yelling fire to Joseph and Mary. He is going to You've got to move. And the word get up literally is the same exact thing you say if you've got kids and it's a school morning, get up. And it's the same tone you said, get up. Or maybe your spouse, uh, one of you likes to sleep late. Time to get up. We have to get going. It's exactly the same occurrence. Three times in the birth narrative, you're going to see this phrase, get up. Now, Herod, we need to go back a little bit in history to understand Herod. Herod the Great is a megalomaniac. Uh, when you go to Israel, we'll show you the Herodium, which is a man-made mountain. You're not going to believe it. You're going to go, there's no way this guy made He made a mountain. The, the Herodian temple complex, it was like Herod said, that complex is too small. I'm going to build a bigger one. When you go to the top of Metsuda, also known as Masada, where it was probably David's stronghold. That's what the word means, stronghold. In fact, the NASB, the Bible I like to read out of, always translates Metsuda, stronghold, in the Old Testament. And he goes up there for a fortress. Herod overbuilt that. Herod was arguably second to China and perhaps Egypt, the, the biggest global builder of history. He's a megalomaniac. Uh, one of my dear friends who is a tour leader in Israel says he's Danny DeVito with a short man complex. <laughs> and he was a small statured man. Now, the Herodian dynasty is very complicated, very complicated. I actually have a little uh, map of the Herods and the crowns, Archelaus, the Ar and different roles because there are so many different Herods. This particular Herod is Herod the Great that we're reading about, the fear has come to him. It provoked paranoia on Herod's part. But why? Herod's half Jew. So we go back in history. The word that Herod heard was the king of the Jews, a lineage of David was born. Okay, big deal. Well, you got to go do homework because Herod is a descendant of Esau. So you're going back to Jacob and Esau. The birthright was traded for a bowl of porridge. 
Esau becomes a persona non grata. Jacob becomes the father of all that's going to follow in Hebrew and Jewish history. Esau's not a delightful guy. So Herod is half Jew. His lineage is tied to Esau, not Jacob. This is a political threat. If you're a megalomaniac who's paranoid and you hear that the king of the, the Jews is born of the Davidic line, this is like, uh, and we talk about red and blue waves, uh, this is like, you know, a royal wave that's going to destroy his empire. So he's going to take an overstated action. In verse 14 of the passage we read, Joseph does this under the cover of darkness. He travels about 70-some miles uh, after he gets the message from the angel. Why in and out of Egypt? Well, you know all this already, but just as a review, it was prophetic. If you look down in your Bible to Matthew 2.15, I don't have it on the screen, he quotes Hosea 11.1. 1. He remained there until the death of Herod. Again, that's Herod the Great. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then we do have Hosea 11.1, 1, so you can look at it. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. So that's the Holy Spirit moving in Matthew's pen to recall and recount Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We discussed last week Yeshua, Yahweh, Hosea are all basically the same word. It means Yahweh saves. Interestingly, that the Spirit moves Matthew to call on Hosea. The book is called Yahweh Saves to remind them, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is written, you remember your history. Uh, I, I, I always remember the alphabet. I comes before J, A, B, C, I, J. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. Israel is larger. It's also known as Ephraim. At this time, it was the largest tribe. So Hosea is writing a letter that it's almost tongue-in-cheek. The letter is called Yahweh Saves. And I'm going to tell you, out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son. What would the Ephraimite Israelite think when they heard, out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son? Out of slavery. Out of Egyptian captivity. So we've got this tension as you're reading the story. What's going on? Because that's not why Joseph is going to Egypt. He's going to Egypt to escape persecution. He's going to Egypt to save the child. So one of the reasons we unpack some of this, Genesis 46.3, Jacob is told, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. A metaphor, Joseph will bury you. So out of Matthew's citation, they're going to think this is out of slavery. The New Testament reader is going to be going, why is he quoting a prophecy about out of slavery? When Joseph is told, go to Egypt. So we start tying these things together and the connections together. The, again, the command is very simple. Get up and go because the, the child's life is in danger. A very small detail, but for you BSF, precept, uh, um, Community Bible study folks, you'll notice the child is the prominent noun in the sentence. Joseph is, oh, by the way, take the child and his mother. Because the child is what's important, not really Joseph. Joseph is the delivery man. The child is the package. Joseph, you get up and take the child is prominent in the sentence. And they're going to go in and out of Egypt. So we're escaping danger to go into Israel, Egypt, and then we got to get 
out of Egypt to escape slavery. As an aside, you know the phrase slaughter of the innocents? You ever heard that? Any of you art history majors? Any of you study art when you were... No art history majors in this room. I'm, I'm surprised. There are, I mean, when you look at the Rembrandts, when you look at the, the Dutch masters, there are certain painting periods that were very biblical in nature. And there are some of these paintings that are iconic in the slaughter of the innocents and the flight out of Egypt or some of these iconic paintings. And they're interesting to see how these artists interpreted or over-interpreted the passage. But a lot of people would associate the slaughter of the innocents with a whole array of artistic expressions of this experience. And I won't go way down the weeds, but essentially in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, we're going to read that Herod's rage, he's so incensed, he destroys all children, all boys, two years and under. That's known as the slaughter of the innocents. And then the reference is that Rachel weeping for her children, which goes back to a passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Herod is the last He's the big Herod. He dies weeks after this. So he administrates his soldiers to go murder children. He's a megalomaniac. He's powerful. He has the capacity. And he dispatches these men to go kill all these children two years and younger. And they are then fled, Joseph, the child, and Mary, and they're safe. A few weeks later, then Archelaus will take his place. And then Archelaus and Herod Antipas are the next two. So you've got Herod the Great, there's four or five subtexts, but then Archelaus is a very short term as the Herod, and then Herod, uh, uh, Herod Antipas is the one who's going to be over Jesus primarily over his life. Antipas is going to be the one who's going to send him back to Pilate. He's going to, Jesus is going to call him that fox. So that's the Herod. So there's the Herods are a complex system. Uh, think of the Kennedy dynasty on steroids globally. That's what you have with the Herods. It's a very complex backdrop. I'm belaboring this because you and I don't always understand this little Christmas story of what's going on in the political drama of the day. God is moving heaven and earth, we'd say, to protect his son. Why is that so important and why is Egypt playing the role? Remember when Joseph dies in the Old Testament, we have this cryptic phrase, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. What happened? They forgot their history. They forgot their history. And he treats the Israelites harshly, severely, brutally. And that sets up the whole Exodus story, right? That sets up the get, let's get them out of Egypt. So we've gone down to Egypt for certain reasons, for protection. Now it's time because Egypt has become abusive and is killing us and killing our children. So don't miss the connection. The second, third passage I want you to look at is Exodus chapter 4 with me. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. Let me read them or you can follow on the screen. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, sidebar on the word firstborn. There are certain religious groups that um, firstborn is a, is a very hot potato. It was Jesus the firstborn of all creations, as Paul writes in Colossians? And that, does that mean he was the first ever born? And, and scholars, scholars are boring people that get bored with things, so they dig these real deep holes in their area. 
and they're experts in their hole. And once in a while, they stick their head up and look around and go back in their hole. So the scholarship that's, that's, that's bubbled up over the decades on this word firstborn, it, it's, it's astronomical, the opinions. All it means is primacy. Some of you have a firstborn son. And some of you, that may have been very important that your firstborn be a boy. In some cultures, it was considered kind of a bad omen if you didn't have a son first. And you kept having children until you had a son. And whether you like it or not, in the Middle East, those women don't matter. Until you have a boy, then that's your firstborn son. Now, what the point of that is, it's primacy, it's position. In our, in our, in our culture, my... My sister is the firstborn. She's eight years older than me, and rightly so. Uh, my father uh, told her as he was getting older and, and he was dying, he said, uh, uh, what's the, 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 the limerick? He says, your son's your son till he marries a wife, your daughter's your daughter all of your life. And he told her, you're the firstborn. You're going to take care of your mother. And I'm so glad she is. <laughs> Had it been the firstborn son, perhaps the firstborn son, and so Joanna is over the estate and managing her health care and so forth and so on because she's the firstborn. Is she more important? Was she, is she better than? No, she just had primacy in the family system. She was the oldest. Olders tend to be more compliant, all the things we would talk about as Westerners. But when Jesus is referred to as my son and the firstborn of creation, he's not the first man ever born because he's eternally existed and he was born, Galatians 4.4, 4, at the proper time, by a virgin under the law of Rome. So he enters time and space, but he also appears in the Old Testament, so it's a mind-bender. It's stuff of science fiction. You can't figure it out. So was he the firstborn of all creation? In the sense that he has primacy and first rank. Now, let's tie it back to Pharaoh. Why is this important? Pharaoh thought he was a god. Pharaoh thought his firstborn son was a god. So when you look at the 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 war, if you will, in literature, we call it a polemic. And so in literature, it's, you know, it's red versus blue. It's army versus navy. Go army, right? So whoever won, yes, army won, right? They trounced navy. It was terrible. Um, but it, so you have sides. In literature, it's called a polemic. Pharaoh has made himself out to be a god. He has millions of Jews that are basically indentured slaves to build his buildings and carry out his life. They're multiplying so many of them, it becomes a threat to the Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. As you fast forward in the story and God brings the plagues upon him, what was, what was, this, what was the discussion between Moses, God and Moses and, Mo, and him sending Moses to Pharaoh? Let my people go. And most people miss the most important part of that phrase. Let my people go a three days journey into the wilderness that they may, what? That they may worship. Getting them out of Egypt wasn't simply a mass exodus. You know, exodus is one chapter of the book, which we all miss. It was getting them out of the trappings of slavery and indentured and idolatry under Egypt so they could worship Yahweh Elohim, the one true God. And then the wilderness wanderings were to strip them of all the idolatry and their dependence upon the pots of meat, the leeks and the onions that we left behind in Egypt. God is taking his son, Israel, out of indentured slavery that they kind of like and moving them into a wilderness experience that's a lot worse than where they were. 
and then he'll strip that out of them. Interestingly, uh, pious Jews to this day don't have a problem with idolatry. It, it sort of cured them. Orthodox Jews, nominal Jews, different story, but that's all for free. Let's go back to Pharaoh for a minute. Pharaoh is making himself out to be God. So the plagues are called a polemic. You think, I'll just give you two. You think a frog is a god? I'm going to send you frogs like you've never seen before. And they're going to die and be a stench. You think the sun is a god? I'm going to turn off the lights for three days and show you that I'm over the sun. Each of the plagues was a polemic against the gods of Egypt. What's the story? Who's God, Pharaoh and his son or Yahweh Elohim and his son? That's the big picture of the literature of the Exodus. That's the fight that's going on. So now we've got this little, this little birth narrative. Out of Egypt, I'm going to call my son, my firstborn. I'm going to call him out of there. The position and prominence is what's in effect. It is chilling, and if you've read it and know the story, the final plague is the Passover, what we call the Passover, which occurs during the darkness plague. And then we have the Passover, and um, they're going to kill the lamb. We're going to commemorate the Lord's table. They're, they're going to kill the lamb. They're going to bleed it. They're going to put blood on the doorpost, on the lentil of the house with hyssop. They're going to eat a combination of bitter herbs, some vegetables, uh, the meat roasted from the goat or the, uh, sh the uh, sheep roasted with fire. Uh, they're going to dispose of what they can't eat. Unleavened bread because it's quick and because it also removes the sin aspect of yeast or leaven that spread through the house. A lot, a lot of different stories going on there. But the whole picture of that was... Um, you're trying to kill my son, Israel, I'm going to kill your son. And the only safety for the Jew was, you better do what he says on this Passover thing. You better take that animal, you better kill it at twilight, at twilight, you better put the, you better do it right, gird up your loins and get out of Dodge when I tell you. And then all the firstborn of all Egypt die. What's just happened to Pharaoh? His God died. Yahweh Elohim killed who Pharaoh would argue was God. So the polemic that goes back to Israel and Egypt is the same today. Who's God? Under Rome with Herod, which would be an archetype of Pharaoh. Under Rome, where Herod trying to kill all the children, what did Pharaoh try to do? He told the midwives in chapter 1 of Exodus, when the Hebrew women have those boys, you kill them. And the midwives were, were, were crafty. Oh, the Hebrew women delivered too quickly. We can't get there in time. Because it was unconscionable to murder a child. Well, it happens under Herod. You see, history hadn't changed. We, we re read recently about this king who allegedly killed this reporter, and you know, you know all this stuff's going on. And... Um, People are so surprised that a king would order the death of somebody. Nothing has changed. We just don't know history. We're living under a world system that could be called Egypt or Rome, run by pharaohs or herods or sheiks or whatever you want to fill in the blank. But there is a sovereign Yahweh Elohim who's not mocked. Jesus is born to die and I don't know, we sometimes look at Bible characters and think they're sort of like, you know, stone knives and bearskin rugs and, you know, they're, 
sort of live in a cave dwelling type thing. I think Joseph and Mary in a, in a Bible quiz could beat all of us combined. Because pious Jews knew the word. Pious Jews memorized enormous amounts of oral tradition. And I think when Joseph is hearing these things and he sees these dreams, he's obeying God. Maybe not that moment when the angel told him to go to Egypt and later so when it's safe, I'll bring you out. Maybe not that moment, but I bet in very short order he connected the dots. Because this is just like when Israel went down to Egypt. Now, why did they go down in the first place? Do you remember? A famine. In Hebrew, there's no bread. There's no grain. The reason they traversed down to Egypt was because there was no bread. They come out of Egypt. And remember, Jacob, and the poor guy, he's lost Joseph. He thinks Joseph's dead, right? His beloved son. And they're dying. And he looks at his, you know, you almost see him sitting on the couch playing Game Boy. You know, his sons. Get up and go find some food, for goodness sakes. And they go to Egypt. And you know what, the story. And they keep Simon. Simeon? Simon. Simeon? Simon. Simeon. They keep him as hostage. And then they had to go back. And then, of course, Jacob's bereaved. Oh, my God, what have you done to me? Well, they ran out of food again. Same song, second verse. Go back. Get some more food or we're going to die. In and out of Egypt. In and out of Egypt. What's the town where Jesus is born called? Bethlehem. Bet means house. Lechem means grain or bread. The same story, whether it was Jacob, whether it was Joseph, the same story was you go down to Egypt when there's a famine in the land, which is a result of your sin, by the way. I'm going to make a provision for you, and I'm going to care for you. And when it gets to the tipping point, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. But you've got to believe me and trust me and follow me. And so we have this little prophecy out of Egypt, I will call my son. It's a double entendre. I'm going to send them down there to illustrate what happened to Egypt. I'm going to call them out of there to be your savior. I'm going to send Israel down there because they're famine. They're going to end up in slavery to sin and bondage to Egypt. I'm going to strip them out of that. I'm going to, I'm going to consecrate them for worship by getting Egypt out of them and make them a new people. And it all culminates. We look back last week on what God did. God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted, period. Now, let me apply that, and it's going to be uncomfortable for some of us. I do not think God's sovereign plan for your life or mine can be thwarted. Can we muck it up? Can we drag our heels? Do injustices happen? I would argue God's sovereign plan cannot be thwarted for your life. Now, here's the, the next caveat, and Christy alluded to it very well, comment on it. You have to rest confidently in what he's done. And what are we all trying to do? We're all fixers. We're all fixers. We're all, let's get it done. Let's make better decisions. Wayne and I had a conversation a couple times in the last few weeks about you know, what we're trying to do at Stonebridge. And we're so excited. We're so humbled. We're so appreciative. We're so, it's so cool. And it's like, what are we doing next, Wayne? What are we doing next, Michael? We're making it up as we go. It feels, it feels parochial. And, and we kind of laugh and say, you know, if God doesn't do this, it doesn't matter. And that's the part that excites me. Because by faith, we're doing something. 
If he helps us and blesses us, we give him all the credit. As I said the first time we met, if it doesn't work, I'll take all the blame gladly. If it works, we give him the credit. If it doesn't, we'll take the blame. And to me, that's a no-lose scenario. Because we are hopefully being faithful. I don't think anything can thwart God's will for your life. It may not be the life you intended, the life you hoped for, the life you wanted. It may not be the life you were sold. That's called growing up. That's called being mature. That's called looking at your own stewardship of the resources God's given you. As we commemorate the elements, I want to remind you we have four stations. Take your time. Uh, come up here. If you're with a family or a friend, grab the elements, go off a little bit. Uh, say a quiet prayer as a family to your, uh, by yourself or where you want. Take your time. We have, we have time. We have room for this. But I want you to think through Egypt and why Jesus is called out of Egypt. Abrams goes down there for a famine. Jacob moves his clan back and forth. Um, they go out because there's no bread. The Passover is established because of this. Three days in and out of Egypt. Three days is a metaphor we find all through our scripture. The child Jesus is going to go down to Egypt and come out of Egypt, and he's going to be from the house of bread. This is like, you can't miss this stuff. Hello, McFly. This is like the most basic theology, but we miss the story because we're too familiar with the obvious. This is a big picture. It's a long ball. The passage tells us the God-man Jesus Christ will be born to die on God's order, and nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to stop the remedy for sin. The application for you and me, do you and I live faithfully, knowing nothing can thwart his plan for your life, and it does not always work out the way we want, turn the page, let's grow up, will you live faithfully? Will you trust him for bread? Isn't it funny how it always comes down to bread? You got to eat. The two elements of life, liquid and solid, commemorate what we call the Lord's table.